0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education EducationX. Thank you for joining us. In 1837, Horace Mann became the nation's first state education officer. He was appointed secretary to the Board of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And over the next 11 years, he set up statewide credentials for teachers, state guides for books and curriculum, campaigned for compulsory education, and many other things. States around the country followed his leadership. Fast forward today after eight years, Jim Pizer, James Pizer, has just stepped down as secretary to the Board of Education after serving for almost as long as Horace Mann, eight compared to 11s. He's now at the Program on Education Policy and Governance here at the Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School, and, and we're delighted to have him both at our program and here on the education exchange today. So, thank you Jim for joining me on the education exchange.
1: Great to be here, Paul. Thank you for having me. And by the way, I don't think I don't think they're going to be erecting any statues to me the way they did Horace Mann, but that's okay. I'll I'll live with that. Well, but I have to ask you, are
0: you the second longest serving secretary to the board after Horace Mann?
1: Well, you know, I think technically speaking, his job was more analogous to the commissioner's role rather than the secretary's, even though we same that, uh, share the same title. Things of the jobs descriptions have changed over the years, but I think I've served let's put it this way I've served a long time uh, and also uh, as a member as a as secretary I was also a member of the board prior to that for about 10 years. so I've served on the state board for over 18 years. I, I think that's got to be some kind of record or it should be.
0: Well uh, we can blame you just about for everything then uh please so do let me ask you uh,
1: what do you think you accomplished before
0: turning to uh, anything that's a, a question mark what do you, what do you what do you what are you proud of?
1: yep yeah. well um, so at least over looking over the last eight years, I think there are a few things that I uh, sort of hold up as being successes or accomplishments to varying degrees. One is that we undertook sort of a thorough review and updating of all our curriculum Frameworks. Uh, we uh, totally overhauled our state assessment. We updated and improved and strengthened our school accountability system. I mean, basically, we kind of updated, sustained, and strengthened, I would say, the foundations of standards-based reform, which for us in Massachusetts go back to about 1993. Um, And that, you know, that all happened in a time when uh, the sort of interest in and support for, for lack of a better word, sort of the, the traditional uh, uh, elements of uh, of school reform going back, you know, even before No Child Left Behind, um, were either coming under attack or were at least losing their saliency with the public and with, uh, with the political um, powers that be. So I think the fact that we were able to do all of that during this time is pretty significant. And in the process, we also added new uh statewide standards on digital literacy and computer science as well as updating our um, curriculum around history and social science to include a, for the first time a full year uh curriculum at the eighth grade level in civics so you know I, yeah I think in in sort of uh, strengthening and reinforcing the basic foundations of ed reform in the state I think we got we did some good work and did, did it under what may not have been optimal circumstances
0: well that's actually sounds a lot like uh what Horace Mann was about if you think about it he he was interested in in establishing a statewide curriculum a statewide uh, books for for teachers to use and school systems to use so so you're, you're pursuing a bit of that same agenda but it's coming under attack is it is it going to persist uh as we go forward or is it, I just feel like we're reaching the end of this uh emphasis on. Uh, statewide standards?
1: Well, I mean, I have my fingers crossed, um, and there are two things I'd say about that. One is we're, um, we've, in Massachusetts, we've had, uh, essentially for this whole period during ed reform, with one exception, we've had Republican governors in the corner office um, of, you know, a heavily Democratic legislature, but Republican governors. And we've had leadership within the legislature, democratic leadership within the legislature that has been supportive of the basic principles of education reform throughout that whole period. I think now uh, we have a Democrat in the corner office and she has not expressed any uh, direct uh, opposition or um, uh, specific concerns about the existing framework of education reform, but has, also, but has also raised some questions and doubts about you know some of the aspects, especially around assessment. Um, and especially around the use of our assessments for uh, as a high school graduation requirement. So there's a there's a concern and anxiety. I think that we all feel like, you know, this may be under a little uh, threat again nothing uh, explicit or direct at this point. But I think the problem we've had is that throughout there's been a reliance on the executive branch to really um, exercise real ownership and commitment to the basic principles of education reform. And the legislature, although they originally sort of back in the day were full partners in this, have been a little bit more reluctant to get in the middle of it all. And so, and meanwhile, the union has gotten stronger and some of the, some of the political dynamics have, have changed in such a way that, you know, I think if a threat is made to it, it might be a little bit harder to resist than in the past well
0: you know the national assessment of education progress has been the way in which country the country as a whole has been watching what states are doing and massachusetts has always been number one at least it has been number one for you know throughout the 21st century and so but now i see no improvement in massachusetts performance on the national assessment maybe for the last 10 years and maybe actually some slipping on that, especially since COVID, but even yeah. before that. So what do you think is happening uh, on the ground? Uh, that you might have the these great assessments, but really what's yeah. happening in this sc- in the classroom?
1: Well, I think this sort of raises a you know critical reality, um, which is that the framework of education reform, you know, standards, assessments, accountability, um, I think they make improvement possible, but they don't actually, you know, educate kids in the classroom. It's all at the end of the day, it's about execution and what's happening on the ground, not so much what the policy uh, framework is. And I think in the, in the early days, we probably took advantage of some low hanging fruit to align uh, curriculum that's being taught in schools towards common standards, uh, elevating some expectations above where they were or where they were non-existent. And we made some significant gains in the first you know, five to 10 years. But since then, honestly, the, the gains measured by NAEP or even our own MCAS assessment have been pretty nominal and have shown some softness over the last few years, even pre-COVID. Um, so I think that points to the fact that we collectively and and that includes at the state level, need to be thoughtful and a little bit more engaged in what's actually going on in schools. I'll give you two examples of that, which I think are important accomplishments over the last eight years, or at least the beginning of an accomplishment. Um, One is we uh, focused on developing and launching early college, early career pathways at the high school level. Uh, And we're now in more than 100 high schools across the state uh creating these uh structured courses of study with uh work-based learning experiences with technical coursework with um in paid paid and unpaid internships and with access to post-secondary courses including in the early college track uh at least 12 uh college credits that can be available to students at no charge that work which is much now getting much more into what is going on in schools as opposed to the basic framework of reform Uh, I think offers at least some potential for changing the dynamic within uh, high schools, both in terms of what is taught and how it's taught, but also in terms of student engagement, Uh, because one of the the, uh, unfortunately common questions uh, that all high school students seem to have is, why am I here? What's the point? How does this connect to the real world? And thinking about career and college in a more uh, uh, intentional and purposeful way is a way of answering that question and hopefully getting better student engagement at high school and better outcomes. So that's one category. And then the other is around reading in the early grades. Um, as as you know, there's been a lot of focus on the science of reading, um, and we've taken some initial steps to require all, all school districts to administer uh, screeners, literacy screeners for all children at least twice a year in grades kindergarten through third grade, in order to, first of all, find out how they're progressing because otherwise We basically don't know until they get to third or fourth grade whether they can read or not. And then second, requiring that that information be shared with parents, um, especially to the extent that students are below benchmark, and also requiring the schools to develop individual plans for those students to get them back on track to reading proficiency by third grade. So I think those two things are are good examples. Let's
0: talk about the career uh, topic first, because you, I mean, the high school, a lot of people say the high school is broken and we gotta rethink the high school. And it's interesting that you've created this new uh, alternative, uh, thinking about career and technical education, but how about thinking more broadly? Are there ways of redesigning high schools so that they don't look like the broken institution that I'm afraid uh,
1: many people think they are today. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, that's very much what I hope the byproduct of this work will be. Um, so at the moment, it's still fairly small scale. I mean, these these pathways are in 100 high schools, but they're you know enrolling probably less than 10,000 students at this point. Um, but when they get to a certain scale, I think you're going to see that uh, the ex- the high school experience for the students and frankly for the staff as well is going to have to be very very different. And it's going to include a different way of thinking about um, course selection and course progression, uh, a different way of thinking about what learning goes on in schools as opposed to out of schools, including on college campuses and workplaces, Um, and also in terms of being much, again, much more purposeful about moving uh, students forward uh, towards their future and one in which they have a sense of ownership and choice as opposed to You know, they just go into school and they do what they're told, uh, or they go to the cafeteria, if you will, and select from a pretty limited uh, menu of options, uh, all of which don't really add up necessarily anything because they're not intended to be connected to one another. Anyway, all this is, I I think there's potential there. There's a whole lot of work that needs to be done to make that idea or that potential a reality. But I think this is a path forward and one, frankly, that. At the moment, it seems to be driven more by interest and demand from the field, including parents and students, but also including staff, than it is sort of a top-down mandate that comes out of the you know the state house.
0: Is the Carnegie unit a, a dead idea? It's, it's an old idea. It's, you have to have so four courses in English, four in history, four in math, and four in science in order to get into college. So. You, you, and that's, I think that rule is still in place. Is it in place here in Massachusetts?
1: Yeah. You know, if it's not in place as a formal rule, it's clearly in place as a universal practice. So I'm not sure there's, there's a difference. Um, there are definitely workarounds to it uh, in terms of what counts as a, essentially a credit hour in a high school course uh, or what counts for seat time. So I think there are workarounds, but uh, it would be all a lot easier and a lot smarter, I think, if we were to step back and sort of focus more on uh, outcomes and uh, milestones and benchmarks and, uh, you know, I don't want to overuse the word credentialing, but but um, uh, measures that are focused more on what students know and are able to do than, you know, how much time they've sat in the seat. Well,
0: it's very interesting what you're saying about preschool, too, because some people say that Yeah, maybe the the people who suffered the most from the pandemic were the little kids the kids in kindergarten first grade uh who never went to school perhaps a lot of them or it never made any sense for them to be learning online in the first place so um and but we don't know about it because nobody's testing them no nobody's watching them do you see
1: this as an emerging problem i think it's potentially a devastating problem um I mean, even when you look at third and fourth grade scores uh, from our MCAS tests that were administered last spring, which you know, for those are still young children who were you know learning from home for basically for almost two years, um, their uh, their numbers in terms of reading proficiency dropped significantly, and the, even though the gaps percent the percentile gaps between white students and uh, and students of color didn't change very much. Um, they, the 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 the, uh, the the percentage of students in each of those categories um, who are reading on grade level now reflect very dramatic differences. So even though they both may have dropped ten or fifteen points, uh, black students and Hispanic students were dropping ten or fifteen points from a much lower base. And so now you've got numbers that look like you know twenty percent, twenty five percent of black students are reading at grade level. Um, and that's, you know, that is a devastating number uh, for those kids. And I think for the kids who are in kindergarten or first grade during this period, who we haven't even tested yet, I'm afraid those numbers are certainly not going to move much from there and maybe even worse. So what can be done about it? A lot of
0: people say, you know, schools have to, you know, double down. They got to be twice as good. So what? what's specific concrete steps can yep. be taken to address that question. Well,
1: certainly some uh, direct interventions with children who are struggling to read, you know, through tutoring or extra time or in class and out of class supports, uh, also including uh, uh, what in our terminology would be acceleration academies on, and vacations, both during the school year and, and over summer. I think those are you know, all things that should be pursued aggressively. Uh, I unfortunately don't think they're being pursued as aggressively as they might, especially given the federal resources that are available. But nonetheless, I think there's, there's work that could be done there. But at the end of the day, um, the regular classroom experience and instructional process for reading just needs to fully come into line with what we know about how children learn to read. And some of that is making sure we're tracking their their reading proficiency or their reading performance all through their early grade levels, not just starting at third or fourth grade. And that we're providing interventions that are based in a science of reading curriculum and pedagogy uh, that we know is going to work. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't that's not like it costs more money. It just means doing, you know, doing the regular work better. Uh, And the the frustrating thing is we know how to do it and we just aren't doing it in enough places or well enough.
0: Well, so there is all this federal money that's been coming to the states. And I guess Massachusetts was among the recipients and local schools were among the recipients. So do we know what they actually did with these resources? I mean, schools have been more flush with cash than in the entire history that I've been following uh, education. They've always been short on money. All of a sudden, they've not been short on money.
1: They have plenty of resources. Yep. What have they been doing with it? So uh, we don't fully know, which is a little frustrating, um, because the data always lags You know, at least six months to a year from the actual spending decisions. Um, we do know that the, um, the spending itself, or the drawdown rate, uh, has been fairly slow, um, partly because, I think, initially, school districts weren't sure if the money was really going to be there or if they were going to need it later because the state money might dry up. And so there was a lot of cautiousness about committing any funds other than funds that were necessary to directly address COVID issues. Um, you know, it could have been like air air purifiers and masks and, you know, a whole variety of plastic and all the, all the things that we used to do, the cleaning materials and everything that, that everyone did in the first uh, few months and year or so of, of COVID, um, but they were very slow to, to commit and or to make decisions about how to spend those funds otherwise for educational purposes. Um, that's then, the, then going into this current school year, there's been more uh, uh, use of those funds, uh, and a, but a lot of it has been for uh, sort of uh, mental health related issues, uh, social, emotional, and behavioral challenges that students have, um, and probably a minority of it has been used for hiring more teaching staff, expanding the school day or the school year, or adding summer learning opportunities or what have you. Um, So all of that is to say um, that I don't think the funds have in general been committed for purposes that are gonna address the learning loss or the mislearning opportunities that students have had. It's really more just to kind of stabilize the system uh, and to, to keep an even keel. Um, One other thing just to note about this is that, you know, the reason this, all this money was put in there in the first place was really on the assumption that there was going to be an economic collapse and that state and local revenues were going to dry up and federal money needed to sort of fill the the hole to keep districts even just operating. Well, in Massachusetts that didn't happen. Um, Our tax revenues were pretty solid all the way through and have actually exceeded expectations. Um, And in the meantime, we've adopted the the state has adopted a new funding formula that significantly increases state investment in mostly low income school districts, which were also the major beneficiaries of the federal funds. So to your point, there's never been more money in Massachusetts school districts and urban school districts in particular, um, and most of them are really not fully utilizing those funds and, you know, I'm sort of hopeful they will, I guess, but it's a little hard to imagine they're going to be able to fully, in part because it's hard to find people to fill positions, even if you have all the money in the world. And to
0: create the organizational infrastructure to put tutoring into place. If you're going to start a tutoring program and really work on a one-to-one basis or small group basis with children, that's, that's an administrative structure that's not easily put
1: together overnight. Absolutely. I mean, we just as an example, this, there were some federal funds that the governor had control over um, specifically for education purposes. And we devoted some of that to a tutoring program, uh, basically contracting with like, three or four sort uh, of nonprofit entities to deliver tutoring in low income communities. And um, it took them at least a year, really, to get up and running. And even now, uh, I think they're struggling to find tutors and to. Uh, sort of develop the organizational capacity to deliver the kind of uh, supports for students that we had hoped they would be able to do well some states are losing students Uh,
0: California lost about four percent of enrollment between 2019 and 2021 Uh, and everybody's talking about all those kids where'd they go in California but it turns out that massachusetts is not far behind nearly four percent of the students yes. uh that were there in uh 2019 are no longer there now some of that is just population
1: change probably but
0: w- what's happened
1: well i think uh you know uh it's, it's still a little bit of a mystery uh i mean there's been an uptick in private school enrollment there's been an uptick in homeschooling um it doesn't seem to account for the full number and i think the the uh, sort of assumption or hypothesis is not that we have lost so many students per se to leaving the state as much as the inflow of students, in particular immigrant students, but also other out-of-state students has really slowed down dramatically. So um, the, the inflow has has what's really been cut and that is that net effect has resulted in, you know, losing 50,000 or so uh, students. You can say this is bad news. On the other hand, as I said, Uh, State funding and local funding, really, for that matter, has not abated uh, in the midst of all this, in addition to the new federal funds that are coming in. So when you look at spending on a per pupil basis, it's, you know, it's never been higher, never even been close.
0: So people talk about the fiscal cliff, that we have to fear a a dramatic uh, fall in funding available, but you're saying not in the near future.
1: Well, definitely, and uh, you know Marguerite Rosa was at one of our uh, seminars uh, that we put on a couple of weeks ago. Um, And in a lot of states uh, where they have had either softer economies and tax revenues, or the state legislature has reduced spending in order to uh, essentially uh, allow the federal funds to supplant state resources. uh, They may very well face very significant cliffs Um, in. Now, having said that they haven't fully utilized the funds Marguerite believes. They will and they'll and they may even be on a spending spree in this coming year because the funds run out in September 2024 Um, in Massachusetts, because our state resources have been uh, strong because the state has appropriated increasing amounts of state uh, revenue to our schools throughout this period, in theory, if schools are thinking about it in the right way. Uh, they're using federal funds in some ways to forward fund state revenues that are going to be coming to them over the course of the next three to four years. I'm not sure they're all thinking about it in the right way. And I'm not sure all of them are thinking about it as sort of one time expenses versus ongoing uh, support for their operating budget. So I think we're going to see a lot of districts who uh, are finding themselves in pretty tough situation in September 2024 when the federal funds run out. Again, I like think Massachusetts probably a little better than other states. Uh, but I don't think we're going to be insulated entirely.
0: Well, the Commonwealth have wrote a report on the Boston school system that was pretty critical, saying they need to uh, address a lot of important issues. And they, it's the second report in recent years. And and I, you know, people said that there was a takeover possibility from the state. Should should the state have actually taken over the
1: Boston school system? Well, you know, this is one of those be careful what you wish for situations or the dog that caught the bus or whatever the metaphor is you want to use. Um, you know, Boston is, uh, at least in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts context, a big urban district. It's it's now about 50,000 students, probably a little bit less. So in the national scheme of things, it's really sort of like a mid-sized district rather than a large one. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the districts that the state has intervened in through receivership up until now have been really been small urban districts. Um, And this would have been an order of magnitude different kind of task. So I'm not sure a takeover or receivership was ever really the right choice for Boston in particular. However, um, I think the discouraging part is uh, the city has been reluctant to enter into other productive partnerships that they could have entered into with the state that would have at least address some of their issues a little bit more directly with a little bit more capacity and resources uh, and in an environment or a context that might have offered more hope for progress. I mean, I'll just give you you know one example of this um, we had um, in Springfield. We have something called an empowerment zone, um, which is a zone started out as middle schools. Now it's middle schools and a high school um, that essentially operate autonomously within the district. Um, there are feeder patterns within the zone. Uh, there's a uh, school based uh, res- management responsibility. So, principals in collaboration with the teachers in the building are really making all or most of the important uh, educational decisions for their students and families. Um, in my mind, creating something like that, similar to that in Boston, in a neighborhood of Boston, or for certain uh, sort of uh, category of students within Boston, would have made a lot of sense. Also, what would have made a lot of sense to me is, of course, lifting the charter school cap. Um, or using what we call Horace Mann charters, which are industry charters, in order to create more uh, autonomously or independently managed public schools, including those that have, in our terminology, certainly charters or agreements that guarantee their um, their independence and their autonomy, not based on the, the whims of the, uh, the school district, but based on a, a relationship with the state. Anyway, there are things like that that could have been done um that have not been done um and we could in theory use the receivership lever and tool in order to impose that on the district um and you know maybe we'll get there at some point but I'm not sure there was really an opportunity politically or operationally to do that at this time
0: well that raises a question is is the day of the school district the school board uh is, is that have we passed that day it was a great thing to have school boards in the 19th century when they were ways of uh, uh, communities uh, showing how they were yeah. progressing and moving forward. But uh, they have seem to become gridlocked institutions, unable to sort of, they're bureaucratized. They they seem to be very frustrated, unable to change, un- unwilling to adapt. When you look at how they responded to COVID, it was so, in such a uh, uh, crotchety way, if I could say, and is, yeah. is it time to think of new forms of governance?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> short answer, I guess, is yes, or it's, it always is. Um, the longer answer is more like uh, what was a Churchill who said, "Democracy is the best form of go- the worst form of government, except for every other one." Um, it's it's not totally clear how you would replace school boards or school committees. Um, with a governance structure that both provided enough kind of legitimacy within the community, as well as uh, enough capacity and experience and skill to actually be effective in overseeing and managing or at least governing a a school system, especially larger ones. Um, You know, mayoral control, I've always been a supporter of mayoral control in a lot of different contexts. It has not been a, uh, a panacea by any stretch in part because of course it depends on who the mayor is and uh unfortunately or fortunately the mayor often changes so you may have had a good mayor at one one point good meaning from certainly an educational perspective um and then election happens and you have a new mayor and the mayor may want to undo everything that was just done um, and so that sort of political back and forth uh, is is potentially pretty disruptive and not helpful um Boston has had mayoral control really I mean it's just through a, a school committee that's appointed by the mayor um for several decades now and I think that has been a plus for the district in particular around stability and in particular around insulating the schools from some amount of you know political nonsense um but the schools are still struggling as you were just mentioning you know it's, it's quite clear that the Boston public schools um are not nearly uh are not performing nearly as well as they should and probably not as well as they used to even. Um so uh you know honestly I wish the governance there was a there was an easy answer to the governance issue but I'm not sure exactly what it is.
0: Well the Germans have a plan their German plan is the state runs the schools. So they uh, you know the the uh, the state uh then uh, there's about you know 20 30 of them in in Germany and each one of them appoints all the principals all the all the personnel that actually operate the school system are appointed yeah. by something like your offices there in Springfield so why not try that
1: well uh that's I, I think that's a bridge too far for me since I've worked inside state government for a while I'm I'm a little I'd be a little hesitant to to take that on or to uh, live with the consequences. However, um, Massachusetts, unlike a lot of other states, in in a lot of other states, every town, every city has its own school board, its own uh, school department. Everything is run independently and separate from one another. In, In a lot of other places, it's at the county level. And that may be the sort of compromise, if you will, is if you created county level school systems that were aggregation of these smaller districts um, that allowed you to both maybe, well, I'm a little skeptical of this, create some economies of scale, but also address the fact that there's a limited amount of um, you know really qualified and effective leadership talent in the world uh, and in any state. Uh, and if you try to replicate that in every little community, you're gonna you know, run out of talent. Um, but if you did it in larger counties, you know, maybe that's a solution. Um, I, you know, I I would certainly be open to that. We uh, unfortunately sort of did away with counties in Massachusetts, so we'd have to revive them. Um, but I think there's, I think there's worth, it's worth thinking about. My only, my only hesitancy is, um, is fighting governance wars uh, often dissipates all of your energy and political capital. And you end at the end of the day, you end up with, you know, the same schools and the same uh, the basic factors that haven't changed. So I'm in, I'm interested, but the question is whether it's an intellectual exercise or whether it's practical. Well, then the other side of the coin is, is, uh, the charter
0: schools. And, uh, I know that you were part of the movement to, uh, expand the charter schools in Boston and in other urban districts in, um, uh, in Massachusetts. And you went the road, uh, the route of, a. uh, uh the referendum. And so that failed. The voters rejected it. Is that sort of the end of charter schools? Are we got the number we have and that's going to be it?
1: Well, uh I hope not. Uh it's definitely not the total end. The question is whether we're able we're going to ever be able to sort of revive the uh level of growth and um uh in some ways the 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 relevance of charter schools to the broader education reform movement in the state. So um, the ballot question did go down. That's certainly one of the greatest disappointments of uh, of the Baker uh, administration and in uh, my tenure, that we did, weren't able to get that through. Um, but uh, since then, there have been new charters that have been approved, just very few of them. In fact, one just got approved. Uh, it was the first, I think, in three years that has been approved. There has been some incremental growth of existing charter schools, um, but we are bumping up against the statutory cap in many, if not most of our urban centers, which is where most of the charter activity would be. So uh, I am very concerned that we are at a point where we're not going to see a whole lot of growth um, in the sector, where that may have an impact on our ability to attract um, talent into the sector and to continue to maintain the vibrancy of what has been really an important contributor to the academic progress and success of Massachusetts over the last 30 years. Well, thank you,
0: Jim, for joining me on the Education Exchange, and thank you for your leadership at the uh, Program on uh, Education Policy and Governance at the at the Harvard Kennedy School. So uh, I appreciate uh, your joining me today. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Paul. I've been speaking with James Pizer. He's the former Secretary to the Board of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.